right, hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you uh, for the gift of another Sunday morning at church where we can gather as a church family and celebrate who you are and all that you've done. Thank you for the gift of worship, time to sing, time to open your word together, time to have the, the, the Advent reading and candle and prayer just to remind us of these great truths of Christmas. And now, God, we ask for your help as we open your word together. Uh, we pray that you would teach us, that you would shape us and change us and uh, comfort us and convict us and do all that you want to do in our hearts this morning. Pray this for your glory and for our good and the good of your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Hey, well, good morning. And uh, I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53 with me in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. Uh, we'll, of course, have the words on the screen. We'll be in, again, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. And we just want to welcome you, especially if you're new. We're so glad that you're with us here this Christmas season. Anybody here uh, completed their Christmas shopping? 100% of it done? Wow. All right. Impressive. Impressive. Uh, and anyone here not started your Christmas shopping? Not a, okay. A few brave souls. I might be among you. Uh, well, wherever you're at on that spectrum, welcome. And we're glad that you are here. And hey, for Advent, we've um, been uh, having this sermon series called The Fifth Gospel, where we've been looking at passages in the book of Isaiah, which is a prophet. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. And typically when we hear gospel, we think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first books of the New Testament. But the uh, book of Isaiah has so much in it. Uh, that points forward to the Messiah, that tells us about who Jesus would be and what he would come to do, that even though it was written in the 8th century BC, so centuries and centuries and centuries before Jesus, it has so much prophecy telling us about Jesus that some throughout church history have has referred to it as the fifth gospel. And so this morning we're in uh, Isaiah 53, looking again at what it tells us about the Messiah. Um, it's Christmas time, as you know, and I've realized as I've gotten older that you appreciate gifts differently from when you're a child to when you're an adult. Because let's be honest, when you're a kid, especially a little child, you have no concept really of what gifts cost, right? Gifts, just, they're just expected. They just show up uh, for you. But when you get older, and especially when you're a parent, you realize the cost of Christmas. Some of us parents are feeling that financial weight right now, right? Getting gifts for our kids, or if you're a grandparent, or uh, whoever. Uh, the idea is that gifts, we realize, start to learn they are costly. And actually, there's a scale, right? If a gift is more costly, uh, then we tend to view it as more significant, or we appreciate it that much more. If it costs someone something, if it was expensive, uh, there's a weight to it, right? Think about it. If you get a pair of socks from someone, that would be nice. Uh, you know, I you know, appreciate socks, but there's a different feel if you get a pair of socks versus you get a, a pound of craft coffee, right? Now there's an upgrade. To, and that's different from if you get a, a pair of Sacramento Kings tickets, you know? So that's like, what's up? Okay, so you see there's a scale. The more costly the gift, the more often gratitude in our hearts towards the giver, the more appreciation and, and significance of what that gift likely means. And so this morning, we, we are looking at a text that so clearly unpacks the cost of our salvation, the cost 
of the gospel, how expensive it was for God to save us and rescue us. We're in Isaiah 53, but we've been again in the book of Isaiah for a few weeks now, and we've seen this theme over and over again of how the book points us forward in time, looking ahead to a hero, a king, a messiah, a special figure that would come and bring about all of this salvation and fulfill all of these promises that the text tells us about. Even though it's written in the 8th century BC before Jesus, it points forward to a day when God will redeem his people and cleanse them of their sin, like Isaiah chapter 1 talks about. It points forward to a day when God will dwell with his people, when he will be Emmanuel, God with us, like Isaiah chapter 7 talks about. It points us forward to a day when a king will come from the line of David and rule on David's throne and usher in the kingdom of God, a kingdom marked by righteousness and justice, where the right thing is always done, where evildoers are uh, dealt with properly. And where peace rules the day, like Isaiah 11 speaks of. This theme continues throughout the book. We see, if you look at the end of the book, or chapter 40 to 66, the final section of the book, there are these passages known as servant songs. There's four of them, four servant songs in Isaiah. I'm not going to sing for you up here. Don't worry. But these passages talk about the servant of the Lord. They're again telling us about this Messiah, this figure that was going to come and all that he would do. And so you read through these, even in the end of the book of Isaiah, and it talks about how he's going to show up and correct injustice. And he's going to bring freedom for captives. And he's going to bring light to the nations. And he's going to obey the commands of God where the people have failed. And he's going to restore God's people to right relationship with him and to restore the people to being all that God intended them to be. But the lingering question throughout the book, of course, is who is this person? Who will ultimately come and do all of this? But also how? How will this one person come and accomplish all of this and fulfill all of these promises? It gets even more tricky or puzzling when we read the opening verses of chapter 53, one of these servant songs. Look at how chapter 53 starts. It says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So we read one of these prophecies pointing forward to the servant of the Lord, to this Messiah to come, and we see it's a, it's a surprising servant that's described here. I mean, how is he described? Look at the text, verse 2. He had no beauty, no majesty, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's a little strange, right? As humans, we are so often attracted and drawn to beauty and glory and things that shine and sparkle. And yet the text is telling us 
that the Messiah was not someone based on appearances that we would be drawn to. There'd be nothing external about him that would, that would make us desire him or want to draw near to him. In fact, it's, it's even stronger language than that. Not only is it neutral, like, yeah, we're just not drawn to him, but also verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, like one from whom people hide their faces and we held him in low esteem. That's even more extreme, right? It doesn't seem to fit the picture, right? Throughout Isaiah, we've been talking about what? A king, someone in power, someone influential, majestic even, someone exciting, someone magnetic, right? Who would draw people to himself. And yet we read here of a servant of the Lord who's, who's lowly and despised and rejected and one who suffers great pain doesn't quite fit the picture. And so we see these glimpses in these Old Testament prophecies that the arrival of the Messiah won't necessarily be all up and to the right and victory and power right away and the good guys win and the bad guys are defeated and up and to the right real clean and simple. Right, actually, we see that there's some layers to what the Messiah would come and do. And um, one of the best ways I've heard this described is that the Old Testament prophets would, would look forward to the coming of the Messiah and kind of view it like we view um, a mountain range. And if you ever you know, you go up to Tahoe and you're getting close and you start to see some of the mountains spread out, or for us back in Denver, I remember you drive up the freeway right into the mountains and there was just some uh, spectacular views and you could see some of the mountains spread out in front of you and just majestic and beautiful and snow-capped and all the above. And even though it was cold and I didn't like that part, at least the view was pretty nice. You, you know what I'm saying? Um, but often when you're looking at a mountain range, you view it as one unified thing, right? It's like, oh, there's a, a range of mountains, and there's the peaks, and they're all together, and isn't that one nice unified picture? But then as, as you get closer to the mountains, perhaps to climb some of them, not me, but some of you, maybe we'll go climb, uh, you realize that actually what looked like one unified thing, once you get up close, there's actually some distance between the peaks Right? Some are in the foreground, some are in the background, some could be miles and miles and miles uh, away, some are spread out. That, you see what I'm saying? Uh, as you get closer, you realize there's some definition and distinction. And so we, where we sit in history, we can see, hey, the first coming of Christ and what he, how he would suffer and die on the cross. And then there's the second coming of Christ that we still are looking forward to when he returns and establishes his his kingdom fully, and we, we are ushered into the new heavens and the new earth and, and all of eternity with God, and where, again, uh, evildoers and, and sinners who do not repent and turn to Jesus are, are separated uh, from God. Uh, see what I'm saying? There's distinct first coming, second coming, but for the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, often it all looked like one big thing, just the arrival of the Messiah. And so when they saw passages like this, about suffering and lowliness and rejection, also mixed in with a conquering king and a hero and a victor, sometimes it was hard for them to piece out exactly how all that would shake out. And so this is an example of where they read this and would not have really room or understanding of what would it mean that the Messiah, who almost by definition has to win and, and conquer and be this king and hero that saves the day, what does it mean that this hero and king and one who is victorious also has to suffer and die? 
And yet, that's exactly what this text tells us, right? That all of this was true of Jesus. He, he didn't fit the people's assumptions about what the Messiah was supposed to come and do. It makes us think of John chapter 1, verse 10. Do you remember? It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and they rejected him, even though the scriptures pointed forward to him. Because they didn't have room in their understanding of the Messiah for one who would suffer in their humility. And so I ask you, and ask us today, is our understanding of Jesus big enough to fit all that he is? In 1776, the American preacher Jonathan Edwards delivered a sermon titled The Excellency of Christ, where he unpacks how amazing Jesus is by pointing to how in one person there are all these seemingly conflicting realities that are true at the same time. Because this Jesus is called both the lion and the lamb. This Jesus is one who combines strength and majesty with meekness. As God, he is infinitely great, and yet as Man, he suffers a criminal's death and is infinitely low and condescended. This Jesus is higher than any king on earth and yet accessible to even the smallest child. In Jesus, we see infinite justice meet infinite grace and mercy offered. Infinite glory and lowly humility. We see the one who is worthy of all of our worship and devotion and all fame and yet he's rejected and despised by those he came to save. So we see this full picture of who Jesus is. Now, the beginning of Isaiah also reminds us how easy it is for us to miss what God is doing in the world. Right? I mean, think about it. Jesus, the, the, the clearest and, and most profound revelation of who God is, comes on the scene he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But if we want to know what God looks like, we look at Jesus. And yet, he showed up and he taught and he performed miracles and he pointed people to himself. And yet, people in his day rejected him. And they didn't believe and they walked away. And they somehow missed that God was in their midst. Just as Isaiah 53 says would happen, despised and rejected. Isn't it easy for us to miss what God's doing in the world? We look for God often in the big and in the exciting and in the flashy, and often he's most present in, in the lowly, things that we think are insignificant or overlooked. It's so hard for us to see clearly sometimes. I think even of, just a silly example of my own sermons, there are weeks when I get up to preach and I feel ready to go, and I'm like, this is going to be a fantastic sermon. Like, my illustrations are on point. The exegesis is fantastic. The depth and cross-references, and I'm going to take them Old Testament, and then go New Testament, and they're going to be like, wow, it's going to be fantastic, and people are going to be weeping because of how amazing Jesus is. They're going to see it. And then there are weeks where I get up to preach. I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> Lord, I don't have 
the illustrations. I, I, uh, for whatever reason, the week got away from me and, and the time wasn't there and I just don't know uh, how, how well this is going to go. So Lord, help me and just, we're going to read your word and trust that you're going to move in power. And it's funny how God often works. And the weeks that I feel best about my sermon, this is going to be great, are usually the weeks where I hear like nothing from anybody about anything I said. It's just like, hey, you know, nothing that's bad. You don't have to come and tell me stuff after the sermon, but usually hear nothing. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, fair enough. And the weeks where I feel like, man, I just, all I have up here is just, just the word of God and I'm just gonna read it plainly and trust God that you're gonna move. Those are the weeks, seriously, people come up afterwards like, that changed my life. Like seriously, people come up and say like, you have no idea what, how God used that message in my life. Thank you for showing this point or this point or how helpful that was. And it's, I think there's a reason for that. God always wants to humble me and smack me around a little bit and remind me that the power is in him and in his spirit. But do you see an example of how often what we think is going to be great and flashy and, and powerful and effective and whatever sometimes isn't uh, the same way that God views it. And it's the simple things or the things that we overlook or uh, the things that are void of human strength and power and whatever that God moves most powerfully. So I hope that leads us to a posture of humility and for all of us in different ways that we would just pray simply, Lord, help, help me see things how you see things. Because I'm so prone to be blind and miss what you're doing in my life. And you're, you're up to probably 5,000 things in my life and I can see maybe one of them. So Lord, just help me be humble and help me see. Now it gets even more striking as we read on in Isaiah 53, about this surprising servant and what he came to do. Look at verse 4. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we see a surprising servant, and now here we see a sacrificial servant. That this servant of the Lord would come and first, not to conquer as a hero, but to die as a sacrifice. I mean, look at how the text describes the Messiah. He bore our suffering. He was pierced and crushed for our transgressions and iniquities. So we see that this one who is to come will be a sin bearer, crushed for our rebellion. And the text is really specific about this. I mean, sometimes at Christmas time, especially, we, we share kind of vague spiritual sentiments vague ideas of love or peace or joy or light or whatever. Um, but these verses speak quite clearly and definitively of, yes, peace. Jesus came to bring peace, but how will that peace come? Well, it's through his punishment or his chastisement that brings us peace, the text says. Or the verses speak of healing. Yes, God wants to heal us. And how will that healing come? Verse 5 tells us it's his wounds that, that bring our healing. And so we see the doctrine of the atonement clearly laid out in Isaiah 53 and this idea of substitution, which would be a concept familiar for the ancient Jews who knew the Old Testament and they knew the sacrificial system. 
They knew about the Day of Atonement, and they knew about a lamb being slaughtered for their sins, and, and the sins of the people being transferred or placed upon an animal that would bear that sin and, and die. And the idea was that the people really are the ones who deserved death and punishment and the consequences for their sin, and yet this substitute would take it for them. We deserve the wounds, but this Savior to come would take them for us. Not only that, but he carried our sin away, far from us. And so we see that the words of Isaiah are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. We're going to unpack this a bit, but for a lot of people, we should just notice that at first that sounds fairly strange. For modern people, it's usually because it sounds maybe violent or vengeful, or why would that be necessary? For ancient people, they would say, again, why would a hero, why would the Messiah uh, die such a shameful death? It didn't make sense for them either. So we see the logic, though, in the text, why this was necessary. Verse 6, what does it say? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We all, like sheep, we've all gone astray, wandered off, turned from God. So this passage points to the reality of sin. And it uses a variety of words to describe it, right? Transgression, iniquity, sin, which at its core is really about failing to uphold and obey the law of God in our thoughts and words and deeds. We talked about this a few weeks ago, didn't we? How sin has this like relational dynamic to it, where we have broken our relationship with God. Uh, We've left home. We've turned from our loving father. And instead, we've wanted to do things our own way. And even though we were designed and created for fellowship with God, we've turned from him and decided to do things our own way. Again, sin not only is relational, but also carries with it this idea of of rebellion against the commands of God, the the authority of God as, as ruler and king of the universe. Committed cosmic treason, you could say and break his commands, and really wreak havoc in the world. Because sin uh, not only is against God first, but then it also has these ripple effects on a horizontal level where we uh, harm other people, we're selfish, and relationships break down, and people are mistreated. It says we've done this. We all, right, without exception, And it says, like sheep, which is not a flattering picture. We like sheep. I mean, couldn't we be, you know, Spurgeon said we we weren't likened to one of the more noble and intelligent animals, but to a silly sheep. And I think silly is a euphemism. Um, Really, it's, it's a bit offensive, right? We're not, compared to the lion, king of the jungle, we all like lions. I've gone astray. Well, at least we could be like, hey, that's kind of nice. Or we all like grizzly bears, powerful, able, intimidating. No, a sheep. Think about some of the characteristics of sheep. Sheep are known to bolt off in any direction when they're frightened. Sheep are notoriously single-minded and unaware of their surroundings. Sheep are helpless and unable to defend themselves against danger. Sheep are notorious for getting lost and being unable to find their way home. Now, we are loved sheep. The Lord loves his sheep. We are valuable to him. He cherishes us, and yet we're still sheep. 
And probably even worse than that, because not only are we kind of just foolish and silly sheep who don't know better, often we do know better, and we still decide to go astray, right? And we have invitations to return, but we often mock it or reject it. So we, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, don't get me wrong, some of us here have been undoubtedly victims of sin, we read about this, the, the sin of humanity and the, the brokenness of the world and in relationships. And some of us have been on the wrong end of that and we've been harmed or abused or neglected or mistreated. We've been victims of sin. We've been taken advantage of. And so sometimes we read these realities and it, and it cuts deeply because we see how we've been affected by this. But we have to remember that not only are we victims of sin, but we are also all, all perpetrators. We also all contribute to sin in the world, harming others, not all in the exact same way. But this text makes clear that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And let me just say, too, if that's you and you're feeling the weight of how others have sinned against you, we would love to help you find hope and comfort and healing um, as God works in your life. But it talks about how for all of us, sin has consequences, right? Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Judgment before God. So in order for there to be, be justice and a kingdom of righteousness that comes for all eternity, I mean, sin has to be dealt with, right? We can't just sweep sin under the rug. God can't just kind of wink at it and say, no problem. I mean, think about, you know, if you like lawyer movies or whatever or, or crime dramas, there's always like that situation where you think that maybe the evildoer is going to get away with it. You know, think about how something wells up within you if you see like a corrupt judge that's going to let the bad guy go free. Right? You're like, that's not right. There, ha there has to be justice that has to be dealt with. We can't let that person just walk free. Because we know that there's, there are consequences for sin. We have this internal sense that the Lord's given us about justice and righteousness. And so this is why, friends, this is why God had to come in such a surprising way. Because God is a God of justice. The judge of all the earth who always does what is right. And has to condemn sin and deal with it properly. And at the same time, he is a God of love who loves sinners. And so how can God... Condemn sin and injustice and also deal with his love or save sinners in love. It's, it's the cross. Right? It's the cross of Christ where we see the justice of God on display against sin. And we see this way for God to save sinners whom he loves. Because if God came and he was just a God of justice but not a God of love... He could hold evildoers accountable and deal with sin and sinners, but then how many of us would be left? Right? We'd all stand deserving condemnation and judgment before a holy and righteous God. And so we celebrate the mercy of God and the grace of God that not only is he a God of justice who always does what is right, but also he is a God of love and mercy who made a way for us to be forgiven, for, for sinners to be cleansed and washed and forgiven and invited back into relationship with God. So you see the good news of the text, not just the bad news, right? 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. That's the bad news. But the good news, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God in his grace said, rather than your sin being held against you and you dying and being condemned, my son Jesus will bear the consequences. He will be pierced for your transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He'll be wounded so that we could be healed. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He alone could be the sinless, perfect substitute and sacrifice. As the song goes, before the throne, you know the line, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, Jesus became a lamb to save lambs. That's the heart of the message. It's the heart of the gospel that we celebrate each week. Now, in studying uh, for this passage this week, it came about this ancient tradition. It's the first time I learned about it this week. It's fascinating. There's this ancient tradition in the Near East, uh, in the Assyrian culture, uh, that came about, they really knew about it in the 7th century BC, so kind of around the time Isaiah was writing, uh, but, but even extending for a thousand years before this was practiced. In the culture, it was something that was called a substitute king. And what would happen is if they somehow caught wind of the king's life being in danger, I don't know how that would happen, but a bad dream or the king's dog dies or something, and they're like, hey, trouble's coming his way. There's some bad omens around the king. He's being threatened. They would uh, do a few things. They would take the king and put him in isolation. They say, we have to protect the king. We don't want harm to come to him, so we're going to tuck him away in a room somewhere. He's going to be in isolation. And what we're going to do is we're going to get a substitute king. We're going to take someone from among the people. And likely it would be someone who was poor or lowly, uh, sometimes disabled in some way, someone that the community maybe didn't think highly of, and they would take him and make them the substitute king for a period of time. And that substitute would wear the king's clothes and sleep in the king's bed and live in the king's house and eat the king's food and kind of pretend to be king for a season while the real king was tucked away safely from harm. And the thought was that the the danger or the harm or the evil that was coming for the king would be transferred to the substitute king. So that this uh, lowly person of society, now dressed in the king's clothes, would be the one to take uh, the consequences, would be the one to take the harm and the danger. And if nothing happened, even still after that period, that person would be put to death. That person would, would take the harm and consequences Uh, so that the king could be uh, let off the hook, so to speak. So that the king would no longer have danger like a dark cloud hovering over him. And he was ultimately doing this to, to spare the king. One of the people would be put to death so that the king could be saved. But do you see how in Jesus and in the gospel we have the exact opposite. We have the king going to death to save his people. The people were in danger. And so the king was substitute, taking their place and taking the harm upon himself and dying for them. 
And even more than that, in Jesus, in our true substitute king, we then, as, as his sons and daughters, are invited into the king's home and dressed in the king's clothes, his righteousness, and invited to sit at the king's table and eat the king's food. That's how the gospel works. And see, so often in, in religion, we have it the way the Assyrians did in the ancient world. We, we suffer or we work hard so that the God can benefit and be blessed in some way. And yet in the gospel, we have our God come and suffer for us. And we then are eternally blessed and forgiven and welcomed. There's nothing else like the gospel. We can't earn our way into the kingdom or work for it. We simply have to receive what Jesus has done for us on the cross. The text goes on. Look at how the prophecy continues in verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. If you remember, fast forward to the New Testament trial of Jesus. This played out. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. You see how all of these verses are fulfilled in, in the life of Jesus? In his trial, silent before his accusers. In his death, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, verse 9 says, right? Dying a criminal's death amongst other criminals on the crosses near him. And with the rich in his death, remember we talked about Joseph of Arimathea? Because of him and his work, Jesus was buried in a wealthy family's tomb. Wicked and the rich in his death. Centuries before the life of Christ, we read these words. Now, I want to point out one other thing from verse 10. Sometimes we read about the work of Jesus and the cross, and we view it as a great tragedy, as, as a plan uh, gone horribly wrong. Right? This nice Jewish rabbi came on the scene and was talking about love, and unfortunately people got mad, and before his full influence in the world could spread, he was cut down. Like a loaf of bread taken out of the oven too soon, before it was done baking. He stirred, stirred things up a bit too much and, and he upset the Romans and the Jews in power and they got rid of him. And while that's partially true, right? There's human evil on display in condemning Jesus, no doubt. We, we also see from these verses that this was no accident, right? What does verse 10 say? It was the Lord's will to crush him. In other words, God's plan is unfolding for our salvation. It was his will, his plan. So, so the death of Jesus on the cross is not some thwarting of God's plan. It was not God's plan gone wrong. It was actually exactly what God had intended. And in the cross, we see somehow this combination of human responsibility and what we did, putting Jesus on the cross, and God's sovereignty, bringing about his eternal plan of salvation. And this is affirmed in the New Testament, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says this. 
Speaking of Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see how the scriptures teach both God's sovereignty and human responsibility? This man handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, the plan of God unfolding, and yet, hey, you put him to death and you're responsible for that? Both are taught in scripture. And so we see that in the plan and mind of God from eternity past, before the ages began, that Jesus would come and die. So that even in the manger at Christmas, the cross was in the heart and mind of God. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to see one other passage from the New Testament that, that connects to this. 1 Peter chapter 2, referencing Isaiah 53. 1 Peter 2, 24 says this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see the same language of Isaiah 53 now showing up here in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2? And it's important to realize for a couple of reasons. First, sometimes today you'll notice that even, even Christians will look to the atonement and to the cross and say, ah, it's just so, like, how do we make sense of that? Or it feels so violent, or would God really need to do that? Or they would say, ah, this idea of death and sacrifice and substitution, that's like such an Old Testament thing, and, and now, you know, we know better, and God's not really like that, or wouldn't have to do that, or whatever. Uh, but you can look again to the writers of the New Testament and say, this isn't just like an Old Testament concept. You see in First Peter and the authors of the New Testament, they're like, look, this is what God has done to save us. He bore our sins. By his wounds, we've been healed. We, like sheep, we're going astray. And the iniquity of us all has been placed on him. So I want us to see that. This is not just some like antiquated Old Testament thing. This is affirmed Old and New Testament, uh, the gospel, truly. And, and the other thing I want us to see in this is just that, friends, God loves you and wants to save you and heal you. Do you see this? By his wounds, you have been healed. So it's not just this, hey, your debt is paid and canceled and you're, you're free to go, but we're, we're truly invited into this whole new way of life. You, you've returned, First Peter says, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, that in the gospel, it's not just, hey, you're free to go, don't worry about it. It's you're invited into the very family of God. And you can call God your father and relate to God as your shepherd who loves you and knows you and knows your name. And he feeds you and he wants to protect you and lead you. I just want you to see the goodness of the gospel and this new way of life we're invited into where we can truly walk with God and know him now and enjoy him and follow him. But that new life that we're invited into is only possible because of the foundation of the gospel and the work of Christ to take away our sin and bear it for us. And that's what we remember, friends, as we take communion here as a church family. It's a communion Sunday, so we have an opportunity to take the elements that remind us of this gospel message. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. His body was broken 
for us. His blood was shed for, for us. This is the heart of the gospel. And so uh, as a church, we have an opportunity, as Jesus told us to, as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember this reality, to not forget the hope of the gospel. And so uh, hopefully you got the elements when you came in. Um, mine's down on the front row. So when, I'm, when you close your eyes in prayer, I'm going to go grab it. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have a moment of reflection. And then we'll take the elements together. We practice an open table here, which means um, even if you're, you're visiting, you're not a member here, you're um, from out of town, whatever, this isn't your home church. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we invite you to participate with us. And if that's not you or you're not sure what that means for you or where you are, feel free just to sit where you are, reflect on the things we've talked about this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you and we, we thank you for the gift of the gospel. And we see truly how costly it was that to save us, you had to come and die for us. So Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you came and that you went to the cross to bear our sin and shame and our suffering. You were wounded so that we might be healed and forgiven, and washed, and renewed, and invited back into your family. Lord, I pray now, if there's anyone here this morning that's, that's never put their faith in you, they've never received this gift of salvation, they've never trusted in you and your work on the cross, Jesus, for them, pray that now, in the quietness of these moments, they would say yes to you, they would acknowledge their sin before you and place their faith in you as Savior. And God, we thank you for how these elements remind us of these gospel truths. Would you encourage us this morning as your people? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me.